A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So, whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This episode is sponsored by Try Vegan, a vegan meal home delivery service that is nutritious and delicious and makes your life easier. Based out of New Jersey, they deliver throughout the Northeast. Check out more details on their website, tryveganmealprep.com. And you can get 25% off your first order with the promo code LITYOGA. So go vegan. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Friday with friends. I have Mike Damesh with me. Decades before sexual harassment cases were on the cover of every major media publication, Mike was being brought in by leading educational institutions and the U.S. military to help them pursue a new standard of consent and respect. Mike has three books, an award-winning DVD, and he is one of the world's leading influencers and thought leaders on the topic of respect. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Laura, for having me here. I'm excited to be discussing this with you. It is a really, really important and relevant topic today. Oh my goodness, in today's world that we live in. But what was the original impetus for you to get into this profession of leading people toward more respectful living? Yeah, it's not a, you know, when you're a child, you don't think, I'm going to grow up and speak about respect. That's not typically what you do. And that wasn't my plan. I was a college student when I received a phone call that the youngest of my sisters, my sisters are all older than me, four, six, and eight years older than me, but the youngest of my sisters had been raped. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I was lost. I was confused. I was angry. I was hurt. I was devastated. And I struggled. And after that time, the person who did this was caught and went to trial, was convicted, but I still didn't feel like I was whole. It felt like something was missing. And then I heard a speaker and I thought, wait a second, I could do something about this. I can use my voice to do something about this. And that's where it all began. And at first it began from a place of like anger, like we have to stop this, where it then would transition into people don't want to hear what not to do in their lives. They don't want to be told what not to do, stop doing things. They want to be told what they can do. And so we became very proactive in how to build the culture of respect sexually, intimately in the workplace, in the home. And that's how we built the Center for Respect. So you were you were a college student. And yes. what initially, like, I'm, I'm just kind of blown away here. Like, you were in college. And did you immediately, after you graduated, start going down this profession? Like, how do you even map that out? So actually, it started in college. When I heard that speaker, I went to the speaker and said, I want to do this. And 
fortunately, there's a national speaker that lived an hour away. Oh, wait. So what was the speech? What was the speech about? He was talking about sexual violence and, and men's roles. And so then I thought, and he said, I'm happy to help you. And I said, great. And I set up a time to meet with him. And he said, nobody ever shows up. And I showed up. And so he just gave me everything he had. And I built my own version of what I wanted to talk about. And I started going to classrooms and campus professors I knew and said, can I deliver this? And I went to local high school I graduated from and said, can I deliver this in classrooms? And fortunately enough, people trusted me to say, sure, let's try it out. And that's where it began. And they were like, Mike, this is where you belong. This is what you should be doing. Now, keep in mind, this was at the time, this was a year after. So 1990, 91, nobody was talking about this for the most part. Definitely not in high schools and middle schools, rarely on university campuses. And I was at the time, 2021, and I looked like I was 16. So this was not a good combination for people feeling safe with letting this be discussed. So it was, it was a really tough challenge. So what were the steps you took to create this, these programs and eventually this center for respect? How did, did you gather people? Obviously, you're gathering information, you're gathering um, expertise and experience, but did you go out and talk to already formed groups to help you? There really wasn't a lot of that at the time. Like you would have to go to major cities to talk with a crisis center. To, so there wasn't a lot of opportunity for that. So it was a lot of self-learning and just deep diving and then going into classrooms and trying different approaches, different strategies. And what was neat is the, these professors tended to know me, the ones who brought me in. And so they pulled me aside and say, Mike, when you did that one thing there, when you did that role play, the room lit up. And whenever I heard constructive you know, feedback that was helpful, I would live in that zone. I'd be like, all right, we're going to go down that road then. And that's how it developed itself, by going out there and just putting it in practice and seeing what worked, seeing what didn't, remove what didn't, and really thrive in the zone where it worked. So when you're opening, when you're you know, not in a pandemic, and, and when you're in a room uh, full of people, how do you open this discussion and dialogue? How, how do you do this um, role-playing? Yeah, well, definitely we don't role play rape scenarios. That, that's for sure. And people back in the day did do that, but that can be incredibly triggering and traumatic and harmful for survivors. So we, we, I never did that, uh, never did that in my own work. I used to be a student peer educator on campus and they did some of that. We had to do some of that in our roles. I didn't do that in my own programs. So what I would do is I wanted to connect immediately with what the audience does relate to everyone in the room whether this has been in their life or whether they're aware it's been in their life. A lot of times it's been in people's lives and they're not aware. They don't know the person who they love is, is a survivor. And so I wanted to connect with them right away in a safe way. So I would focus on the things we've all been taught that are really messed up. Like, do most people ask or go for it? And almost to this day, most people still say, well, most people go for it, right? And so you go, well, wait a second. And how do you know they want it? Well, you just guess, but you're guessing with their body. And suddenly everybody in the room is like, well, no, no. And everybody's engaged because you're talking about their behavior. You're, you're not coming in there assuming, you're asking. And because I ask my audience questions, their answers drive where we go. They can never get mad at me because it's their answers they're getting mad about. Right? So if they're like, no, no, I didn't say I don't ask. Well, no, yeah, you just said you don't ask. So I'm not trying to guilt you or shame you over that. Let's talk about why that is. Let's talk about how to ask, and we give them a journey, a path going forward. It's almost as if conditioning, because I, I know I've been attending a lot of racial diversity um, sessions lately and how to bring 
be an active anti-racist in, in the movement, in my teachings and in my teacher trainings. And, you know, the first sometimes hardest part is identifying our own part in it, our own, because of the conditioning. And I would imagine it's very similar that we don't even realize men and, and women, we both play a part in, in, in being instigators or subjects of respect or not. And that we have to really examine these behaviors from from the, the deepest roots. So it seems that it, the best place to go is starting off with kids and like shooting them down the pathway of respect without any of these like kind of conditioning that ha- that have been present. You know, like you said, like the guys in the locker room, like, hey, did you get, did you score? You know, all the language around like getting, acquiring um, as if, you know, that, that isn't very respectful. Right. It's, and it's always a you or me focus. Did you get laid? Did you score? Did you tap that? Right. Mm-hmm. And if you listen to this language, did you hit that? Did you tap that? Did you, a lot of violence, a lot of conquering, a lot of score. Did you score? I, I always use that analogy. You say, how does that work? Like you're in bed, the two of you are there, you, you do something sexually, they don't stop you and the score goes two to zero and then you make another move, they don't stop you, it goes three to zero and people are like, well, that's just obnoxious. Yeah, the idea of this is a score is obnoxious. Mm-hmm. Exactly correct. And it's not a we focus. So one of the biggest things we teach adults is when, when you talk about your sex life, people say, do I have a great sex life? And I'll say, well, do you have a mutually amazing sex life? And people are like, whoa, what do you mean mutually amazing? Was it mutually amazing? And that phrase, most people have never heard ever in their life. Now think about how sad that is. It should be the foundation of a sexual relationship that it's mutually wanted, it's mutually experienced. And most people have never heard of it. So when we created the model for mutually amazing sexual intimacy, people are like, oh my gosh, it's groundbreaking. We're like, yeah, it's, it's also common sense. It's sad that we had to create that in you know in the two thousands, right? That's that's insane to think of. So when you when you first started, what group of people were you were you targeting, or was it just like anyone that showed up? I mean, I, I we'll talk a little bit about the military and all that, but how, was it just going to colleges? How did you know where to go? And like again, going back to that, it seems logical to start in our childhood. Do you have any programs, or did you go there immediately? Programs for kids. I could only go where they would give me an opportunity. Right. And because I look so young, actually middle schools and high schools were a safer space in some ways than even maybe a college campus was. So I was doing more middle schools and high schools as a college student than I was colleges at the time. So that's where it began. Now, when I came back to it full time, so what happened is I did this through college, a year out of college. But what we found is people were like, oh, we need this, we need this. But schools were saying, well, we, we can't talk about this. We can't have this conversation. And we were hitting this wall. And then I stepped aside and I just did it here or there. And in 2002, somebody saw me doing it and said, why aren't you all over the country with this? I shared the backstory and they were a speaker. And they said, it's changed. You, they are looking for someone like you right now. They're looking for your kind of programming. And we sold everything we had. We almost went bankrupt. And we focused on colleges and universities. And that's where it really grew. That was in 2002. 2005, the military said, hey, we see what you're doing over there. Can you do that for us? And can you incorporate married life? I'm like, I'm married. We can absolutely incorporate married life. I'm really impressed the military made that made that uh, preemptive move. I, yeah. Yes. Yeah, what they did was they looked at 
what was working in the college world? And they approached us and one other organization and said, can, can you do this? And which was great. They were being proactive at the time. This is around 2005, 2006. And then the momentum just grew and grew. A lot of people don't realize the military does more training on this topic than any educational institution probably in the world. So when you say topic, what is what is the actual like topic that like if the, if you, somebody were to look at a you know a, a sheet of paper or online, what what is the name of the? What happened was the military has what's called sexual assault response coordinators, and every aspect of the military has it, every service. And so what they do is they do the programming to reduce sexual assault, to reduce sexual violence, sexual assault prevention, and supportive survivors. And that's who would bring me us in the people who were in charge in the military of reducing sexual violence and supporting survivors. They still seem like, from what I hear, you know, news-wise and whatnot, it still seems like that is such a, an area that needs improvement. Well, and here's why, and this is what a lot of people don't realize. Our military is composed of our communities. So when people say the military is such a problem, what they fail to say is our towns have such a problem that it's being reflected in the U.S. military. That's the truth. They're getting our seniors in high school who then coming in, or even 22-year-old college graduates who are then coming in as officers, they're getting our community. The difference is when people hear about sexual assault on colleges, sadly, and almost disgustingly, some people go, yeah, you you know, that's going to happen in college. When they hear it in the military, they go, how could that happen in the military? Mm. And they forget that they're both representative of our culture. And so if we could change our culture, transform it, not just change it, at a younger age, we'd have less problems on college campuses, less problems on the military installations. And this is what people don't realize. The numbers are pretty consistent on universities and military installations. The numbers are incredibly similar. So when people think there's a difference here, it's more the myth because of which is getting covered more than the others getting covered. So in terms of respect, what are some of the like key pillars? I know you can't do a whole seminar now, but as parents that are raising children, what would be some of the key pillars that you recommend or that you would be teaching? Choice, 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 choice. That's what I want to stress to everybody watching this. If you're a parent or if you're a 20-year-old who's not a parent or you're a 40-year-old, choice. What I mean by that is if you're a parent, do your children have choice or are you always dictating intimacy? And parents are like, what do you mean? I have the right to give my child a hug. Well, if they learn that the people who love them can give them loving intimacy whenever they want, how are they going to understand that their, their partner who they really like, especially at 12, 13, 14, 17, who's, who implies the same, will you owe me? How are they going to make a differentiation that, well, I owe, I owe my parents a hug. Why wouldn't I owe my partner a kiss or more? Because that's the kind of relationship you would have as a boyfriend or girlfriend or sexual partner. So you have to teach that at a really young age that may I give you a kiss, Jordan? May I give you a hug, Aaron? And you ask your children. If your child says yes, you say wonderful and you give them a hug. And if they say no, you don't do this, but I love you. Because that's exactly what a predator would do to a child. That's exactly what a partner may do to them as they get older. And no, you're going to say when they say no, okay, thank you for letting me know. You're going to honor that answer. You show them that they have choices and those choices should be honored. And by the way, married people are sometimes the worst at this. They'll go to bed, they're horny, they're laying right next to their partner and they're like, you in the mood? And the partner's like, not tonight. And they're like, well, why not? And they act like a 15-year-old. 
moping, <laughs> complaining. And the partner sometimes like, whatever, let's just do this. And they, they choose to have the sex, but it was not mutually wanted. This was not what we call enthusiastically given, which should be the principles of consent. And so we have a really messed up system of guilting people into sexual acts. And it could be any gender doing this, any sexual orientation, any identity. That's so true. I mean, the thing that you say about children is so interesting because, you know, my, mine are now teenagers, so I can't really remember. They were both, they were both, I think, affectionate proactively, but I now know I always automatically do that. I say, oh, can I have a hug? And, or, you know, and I can tell, like, my son is always just like, yeah, mom, you know, and my daughter just sometimes is like, I can just read her body language. And I, I say, okay, you know, let me, and then I just change the subject. Well, let me know if you want to blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So it's, it's, there's not like, I'm not guilting her. I just really see like, and a lot of it is that she it has nothing to do with me. Like, it's just like in her own personal space, she's also just a much more sensitive kid. I mean, to everything, texture, noise. So in that, in that moment of me wanting to come in and give a hug, she's just like, it's not like negative. It's not like a, and even if it was, she still has a right to say no. And uh, I really, but it's, I do see like, definitely with parents, you could really force that. And of course there's the old like, oh, now go give uncle Joe a hug. Come on. And like, that's like, Kind of the worst thing to do is set your child up for this. This you have to do this, especially with grandparents. We talk about this a lot, and when we do parenting workshops in communities, sometimes we'll speak in the school during the day, and then at night they have to speak with the parents. And I'll say, when you say, "Hey, little Johnny," "Hey, little Julie," go give grandma a kiss, and they look at you and they're like, "I don't want to give grandma a kiss," and they're like, "You need to give grandma a kiss." Well, grandma smells. I don't care. Give grandma a kiss. Think about the lesson. You have no choice. You owe this person. And, and Laura, what's amazing is how many married people, how many people in long-term sexual relationships still to this day believe they owe sexual intimacy to their partner? Of all, of all ages, I mean, 20-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds, they believe they owe it. So when their partner gets moody about not having sex, they think, well, let's just do this and get it over with. And they literally have that mindset because they believe they owe. There's nothing healthy about that. So one of the things we want to teach children is you never owe sexual intimacy. You never know, oh, loving intimacy. It is never mean to say no. Now, how you say something can be mean, but the word no itself is never mean. It's really teaching that agency. Like I, yes. like, you know, and that is, that is like the cornerstone for respect. Because if you have it for yourself, you can then see it and appreciate it in someone else that sense of agency and and that is respecting like i'm respecting that we have a different a difference of opinion on something this is like politics i i respect that but you, that lack of respect is really all of our own bullshit coming out you know it really oh, is it is it is I'll give you a classic example is a couple's in bed and the one says you're on sex right now and the other one's like no i don't want to have sex right now the person who was was heard i don't want to have sex right now weirdly thinks why don't you want to have sex with me which they never said, I want to have sex with someone else tonight. They never said that. They said, I don't want to have sex. But yet most partners in their head go, why don't they want to have sex with me right now? And they add the with me. So it makes it very personal versus they don't want to have sex right now. Right. It's kind of like, do you want to take a walk? No, I'm not really up for taking a walk. It's not like, oh, I don't want to take a walk with you because, you know. Right. But it's that's just like, hey, I'm just tired. I need, I need a nap or I'm just already, I've already done enough today. <laughs> that's right. 
That's right. And by the way, it might be that they don't want to have sex with you. I'm not saying that that's, but they didn't say that. And you're making up this story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it always is. It's like so much of a way someone responds has, has a lot. I always, you know, I taught this to my kids very early is that it says a lot more about the people than it does about you. And that's, it's the hardest thing to not get invested in somebody's response to not have a reaction to somebody's response. Of course, it's natural. Those things will come up. But if you can keep telling yourself, like, this actually is not about me. Um, I can only can I can only really control myself. And that's, I think, one of the key things of, of really having respect is like being in control of yourself. And that's and not, you know, trying to assume anything about someone else and wanting the same in return. Well, the struggle is people-pleasing. And, and I fall into that at times. I have to catch myself with that. And what people don't realize is your children, your partners can be high, high, high achievers and people pleasers. People think, well, high achievers. They hand in hand. <laughs> they, they usually do. That's why they achieve at such a high level. They want, the, they want to please everyone, right? It often goes together. And people don't realize that. They think, oh, so smart, such high achievement, all of this. They can easily declare their boundaries when it might be the direct opposite the one who's doing everything might struggle declaring boundaries. That's why they're doing everything. So parents have to really help equip their kids and then know that even if they equip their kids, their kids' own personality, their own concerns, their own strengths and weaknesses might make that even tougher. And so saying to your, giving your kids role-playing of if you, didn't, if you weren't ready for something and you didn't want it to happen, have you thought of how you're going to say that to your partner? Have you thought of the language you're going to use? Have you role-played all the ways they could come back at you? But I love you. But I thought you loved me. But I'm into you. But if you don't, then I'm not going to date you anymore. Clearly, I'm going to tell everybody. Have you thought of all those possibilities so you can feel safe with whatever you answer? Adults, by the way, should do some of this role-playing because some people fear this in a marriage. Some people fear this in intimate relationships they're in. So being able to give yourself language to empower yourself is really important and teaching others to do the same. So for teenagers, for instance, uh, do you have a daughter? So I have all, ironically, I have all sons. So I have all adults. So they're all... Okay, so if hypothetically you were to have a daughter, which you'll have a granddaughter at some point, but maybe. Uh, usually, if you, yeah, oh my gosh, I was going to say, usually if you have, a, you know, all of one gender, then it like flips. <laughs> right, right, right. But, I hear, but I will say this, I, I grew up with all sisters. Okay, so... What would you say, or, you know, if you're giving a talk, like this whole idea of like women have, I mean, by the way, I know this is bullshit, but women have this, I, this, like they need to watch how they dress, you know, just to be safe. It's like a safe thing. Like I think as parents, I, I haven't had this conversation with my daughter because honestly, she's just not, she, that's not who she is. She's not going out. She's not, but I, I'm curious, like if she was all of a sudden, like dressing, like really provocatively, what, how I would respond to that. And, you know, my hope is that I would respond and it wouldn't be about her, but I'm also wondering like, what is the best way to say, like dress all the way you want to. And maybe it is like that. Just dress all the way you want to don't, and you know, don't take shit from anybody, but how do you, what do you think about that whole languaging of like, well, you not, not at all that you asked for it, but this whole, like, you know, you shouldn't, you, it's a safety thing, you know, like. Yeah, it's not. Right. There's, there's okay. no research that shows can back that up. People are like, well, the, the more you show, the more likely you're going to be raped. Nope. If we actually had you interview survivors of rape, you would find that there's no consistency in clothing. 
See, that's what needs to be out there. That 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 information. That information. This has nothing to do with the way you dress. We we of course know that you could dress, you know, like so skimply and you still don't deserve a single thing that happens to you. But even the language of it being a fear-mongering thing. It is. That's what well, here's why people do it. And it's not intentionally to do harm, but it's harmful. They do it because they feel it gives them a sense of control and protection over their children. Leaders do it in communities where they feel it gives them a sense of control and empowerment. By me saying this, I can lessen the harm being done to you, even though it's not true. And so what you actually do is increase the harm. Because when it does happen to that person who you told not to dress that way, they blame themselves because you told them not to dress that way, even though it had nothing to do with how you're dressed. And here's how we know. If the person who raped that person never raped them, the clothes would not have mattered. That's a fact. Mm -hmm. So the only reason the rape occurred was because someone raped that individual. Oh, by the way, there were millions of people dressed that way that weekend. And the far, far majority were never sexually assaulted or raped. Why? Because the far, far majority of people around them did not choose to rape. So what we have to help people realize is no matter what you wear, No one has the right to do harm to you. You owe nothing to anyone based on what you wear or what you don't wear ever. Now, if a parent wants to talk about, in our family, we believe in a standard of how we represent ourselves and how we, they, I know parents will say, I'm going to have that conversation. Okay, whatever you do, don't align that with safety. Yeah. That's the way you get into trouble. You're going to say, look, I want you to best represent yourself. And here's how us as a family, we believe you do that. Then you should always end with this and know this, that if you ever choose not to do that, if anyone ever does anything to you, that is always their fault, not because of the standard you broke that we have. It's their fault for taking the actions they did upon you, always. So if you're going to have that conversation, it should be ended with, and no one has the right to do anything to you based on how you dressed. Amen. I love that. And I really want everyone to hear as parents, because we, of course, like you said, we're trying to control something out of our own fear, but it yeah. is, it is all it's doing is, is just contributing to this messed up sexuality, uh, victim thing that is, is, it's just unnecessary and, and wrong. Well, yeah. And the messed up sexuality is a key part of this because here's the weird part. The parents often who are telling their kids, but if you don't dress that way, love it when their partner dresses that way. They love it when their partner dresses that way. So the kids also see a mixed message. Well, why do the adults dress that way? But I, but I, and, and when I mean kids, we're talking 16 and 17. There is appropriateness, right? That, that at seven and six, we shouldn't sexualize, right, children. And there is clothing out there that is intended to do that. Like there's literally words on there that are sexual in nature on clothing for very small children. So we do need to talk about the difference in inappropriate sexualization versus choice of how I dress and I'm becoming an adult and I'm making those choices and I'm learning what those choices mean, there's a difference, right? There's a big difference there. But what happens is people guilt women's bodies by saying, don't show, right? And they make the body sound like a bad thing. And that can have tragic results as far as women's ability to enjoy sexuality, to enjoy their body when they're with another person because their bodies, they've learned there's, it's just not good. There's, there's too much wrong with my body or dangerous with my body. Instead of learning, my body is beautiful. It's amazing. It is a temple. It is a gift to be treasured, honored, and respected at all times. By the way, all genders should believe that. All genders, all sexual orientation should believe this, all identities. That's the lesson. And because it's a temple, I want to give you the skills to, to have it be treated like that temple it's meant to be. 
So in your, that was beautiful, by the way. I mean, so beautiful. Um, That's because I really try and convey that in my teaching and, and that, you know, we are so hard on ourselves and, and we're living with ourselves. Like our voice is the one we hear the most. And, and it really has to start obviously with parents encouraging us or caregivers encouraging us, but developing that that real um, self-confidence and, and, and true self-esteem. So what are some of the things that you would recommend for any age group to improve their feeling of being self-assured, being confident that they are in charge, that they, are, um, they have that personal agency to decide what, what they want? Well, I want them to always... The, I'm going to go back to some language we used earlier because it's pivotally important. I am the only one who decides what I want to do. That phrase, I am the only one who decides what I choose to do. Not even one, I'm going to say choose to do, because it should be a choice. I don't want to say I'm I'm the only one who's going to guilt myself into doing things. That's not healthy, right? So I'm the only one who's going to shame myself. No, I'm the only one who's going to choose what I'm going to do. If somebody forces something on me, that wasn't my choice, and that's their fault, because I didn't choose that, they chose that, right? So I'm the only one which means I always have the right to say yes or no without guilt. Yes or no without guilt, because I have the right to make choices. Now, Laura, I have to stress something here. This is true for a child of age of consent, right? You you cannot be teaching children who are not able to give consent, because in some states, the age of consent is 16, some at 17, 18, some it's as low as 15, 14. You cannot be teaching somebody who can't give consent. They have the right to say yes because they don't legally have the right to say yes. So it's a very dangerous, dangerous lesson. So what you have to tell them is when you are the age of consent, you have the right to say yes or no without guilt. That language is super, super important. Now, for somebody who's listening going, but we raise our children that that shouldn't happen until marriage, right? Everything's still true though. In marriage, you should always have a choice. God, in almost every religion, says it's a gift from God to be treasured, honored, and respected at all times. A gift is not forced on someone. So it should be mutually wanted. And that key language, I should always have a choice of what I choose to do. Uh, I should choose that I want mutually amazing experiences. But notice it's choice, choice, choice. I choose mutuality as a key component in my relationships. By the way, that's also true in friendships. That if it's one-sided, it's probably not healthy. I want mutuality. So these little markers can make a big difference. I love that. People should just write those some of those words down that Mike was just were using, like mutuality, not not just like what was the word mutually amazing. Whether it's mutual- so mutually sex, amazing, consensual sex is a phrase yeah. that I'll use a lot. I love that. I love that. Like, it, yeah, it's not like did you just have good sex? It's like, well, there was two people involved, and, and it should, and you know, it should be mutually amazing. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Write I mean, those the old phrases. I got laid last night. Well, with, by yourself. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what it sounds like by the way you just said that. You didn't say we had amazing sex last night. Right, right. Well, okay. So tell us now where people can find you if they wanted to join on one of your seminars. I know you're probably doing stuff virtually, but where else do you have, uh, like where can they find your books and, and et cetera? Easiest place to find books and stuff is Amazon. But the easiest place to find me and everything we do and where we are on social media is our website. And our website is centerforrespect.com just like you would spell it out. So centerforrespect.com. And there you'll find everything. And we do. We do online programs for schools and we do live on-site programs for schools. Same with military. We do corporate work now. Corporations have said, can you teach us how to build a culture of respect 
in a corporate atmosphere. So that's not about the sexual side. That's about respect across the board. And we do that. So that's all available at centerforrespect.com. I love that. And of course, I've told you before, I just absolutely love the title, Center for Respect. It's right there is, is what we are, should all be um, aiming for in all, in all the walks of life that we are in, not, not just like in the sexual relationships, but like you said, in the, in the cultural and the racial relationships that, you know, I'm sure that's got to be a big part of what you are probably going to be speaking to or already have been speaking to as of recent. We are absolutely making sure that we're bringing that to the forefront of some of the discussion. We've actually had some panels on race and privilege. All that plays in uh, to these conversations. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It was just um, a pleasure to hear you and and see how passionate you are in this, you know, really um, terrible incident that happened to your sister and how it it turned into something that made became your life's mission. It sounds like. Well, it absolutely is. I love what I do. And I'm fortunate that Sherry and I are incredibly close to this day. Our family is all close. And so to have her support throughout this journey has been awesome. And I want to thank you for allowing this conversation to happen, Laura. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. And as always, I'm pulling for you. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.